we're going to continue today in our series on the book of Psalms. And a very unique psalm, and I'll kind of explain why this one's unique compared to a lot of the other ones here in a minute. But have you ever asked yourself or pondered the question, who is God? When you look at all of the world around and you think, who is this God who created this world? Have you thought, what are his attributes? What is his character? The only thing we know about God is what he decided to reveal himself to us in Scripture. Canute the Great was king of England, Denmark, and Norway. He was praised as a great monarch, but he feared his people thought too highly of him. So the legend tells us that on one occasion, Canute ordered his servants to place his royal chair by the seashore. Sitting on his throne, he demanded the waves to recede. Waiting for the waters to obey his command, he got wet as the waters splashed all around him. Finally, in frustration, Canute stood and rebuked his servants, claiming that only the Lord who created the heavens and the earth are worthy of praise. Psalms 93 calls us to put our seats by the seashore and recognize that our God, the God of the Bible, rules the world. Psalms 93 is the beginning of a series of a section of Psalms inside the book of Psalms called the Enthronement series or the Enthronement Psalms. That is all we know about it. We do not know who wrote this section of the Psalms, why they wrote it, or when they wrote it. But the message of this section of the book of Psalms is unmistakable. And the theme is, the Lord reigns. If we were to leave here today, stop the message right here, that should alone give us comfort to know that our God reigns. He is Lord over heaven and earth. The MacArthur Study Bible footnotes, nothing is more powerful than the Lord, nothing is more steadfast than his reign, and nothing is more sure than his revelation. Psalm 93 is a hymn of praise, but it does not fit the typical formula. Doesn't fit the formula like we looked at last week. Psalms of praise typically consist of a personal testimony. Or like last week, a personal pouring out of your heart, as the psalmist did last week. And then a divine deliverance. If you remember how we contrasted Psalms 88 and 89, fit this model. But neither element is found in this psalm. No one but the Lord is mentioned. In Psalm 93, all focuses on the Lord who is directly mentioned five times in this psalm. This psalm is not about us. It is all about God. But this psalm is for our benefit. The truth of God's reign is our peace. It is our comfort. And it's our strength. This is a small psalm. It is five verses. 
but it is powerful. In this hymn of praise, the psalmist sings of three facts about the Lord's reign over the created world. First is, the Lord's reign is glorious. It begins with a declaration of theological imperialism. The Lord reigns. The psalmist lets you know that right up front, that the Lord reigns. There should be a period, better yet, there should be an, an exclamation point after these three words. This is the ultimate truth that everyone in this world will recognize. That we as believers should continually remember God is king. God's kingly rule is exclusive. God reigns. Not Satan, not man, not other gods. Not rulers, nor foreign powers, not circumstances, nor random fate, but God alone reigns gloriously. Reigns is a present tense term used to express perfect tense truth. It speaks in real time. Whenever you encounter this announcement, the Lord reigns. God's rule is not nominal. It is not theoretical. It is not ceremonial. The Lord's reign is majestic. It is sovereign. And it is eternal. The Lord, we see here, as the psalmist keeps telling us, the Lord is majestic. The psalmist says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. This is a twofold statement of God's divine majesty. God's robe, Psalms 93, it seem up front the Lord reigns. The reminder of the sample affirms and amplifies this glorious truth. And the psalmist employs dramatic imagery to assert his divine rule. The first picture of God in his royal garments is God is robed in majesty. And Hans Christian Andersen's famous work of the emperor's new clothes, con artists posing as weavers, offer to make a vain emperor a set of clothes that the ignorant and that the incompetent cannot see. Maybe some of you have read this work. When complete, the emperor paraded around in his new clothes that the ignorant and the incompetent could not see. Not wanting to seem foolish, citizens pretended to be in awe of the emperor's new clothes. But a child finally stated the obvious. The emperor has no clothes. The Lord is not an emperor with no clothes. He is robed in majesty. Majesty is the divine attribute that is hard to define. One author says majesty is an attribute that links God's holiness and God's sovereignty. God is robed in majesty. His nature, his character, and his works all together are majestic. He is robed in this majesty. It says that he has God's belt. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. To emphasize the all-encompassing of God's glory, the psalmist repeats, The Lord is robed. The Lord who wears a robe also wears a belt. The robe declares God reigns in times of peace, but the belt uh, signifies God reigns in times of war. A robe is what a king wears as he sits in majesty. A belt 
is what he would put on as he stands in strength. This is military language. As a king in this time would prepare for war, he tucked his robe inside of his belt to give him freedom of action. And this divine belt envisions God as armed for battle against the principalities of this world. God's belt is strength, power to subdue. How is the Lord belted in strength? Verse 1 says, he put it on. This is a self-coronation. No outside force makes God strong. No outside force can hinder his strength. The Lord has put strength on as his belt. We see the Lord is sovereign. The Lord reigns because he has unimpeachable jurisdiction over all of creation. Verse 1 says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Note the first word of this sentence, yes, means truly, certainly, assuredly. It is an undeniable fact that God is in charge. The proof is that the world is established. This world is not, as scientists would try to tell you, it's not some cosmic accident. The world is not a product of the Big Bang. The world is not a result of evolution. The world is established. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And if you do not believe the first book or the first verse of the first book of the, the Bible, you will not believe the rest of it. The first verse that God created the world is foundational to understanding the rest of Scripture. In Scripture, divine creation is the basis of divine authority. It's what proves God is God. God is the monarch over all things because he is the maker over all things. Psalms 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and establishes it upon the rivers. What does it mean the world is established? According to verse 1, it means it shall never be moved. Medieval scholars interpreted this verse to mean the plan was stationary. And they thought that the sun revolved around the earth. That is not what this text says or means. This is not the statement of physics. This is a statement of theology. To say the world shall never be moved means that God established the order, and this order will never be overthrown by the sinfulness of man. That's what it means. Today's culture is trying to redefine truth by saying all truth is relative. Anytime I hear the phrase, oh, that's your truth. No, that's not the way truth works. There's one big T truth, and that is the truth of God's word. You hear the phrase, oh, speak your truth. No, there's only one truth, and that is the truth of God's word. Everything in this world flows through God's truth. It is fixed. This is not just true of God's natural law, but it's also true of God's moral law. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. W. Graham Scroggy wrote, He is calm who believes that God is sovereign. He is calm who believes that God is sovereign. What he is saying is, when we rest our heart in the fact that God is in control, our heart is calm. No more need for the anxiousness, for the anxiety of the things happening around us. Why? Because we know that our God is sovereign. The Lord is eternal. As God's word established, God's throne is established from old, as it says in verse 2 here of chapter 93. The Lord is no upstart despot. The Lord is the eternal ruler. Psalms 145 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's kingdom did not begin when Israel became a nation by covenant with God. God's kingdom will not end based on what happens in the nation of Israel or any other nation, including the United States of America. God's kingdom is everlasting. It will reign forevermore. God's throne is established from old because God is eternal. God is uncreated and God is unending. God is eternal. He is immutable, meaning he does not change. Moses prayed in the Old Testament, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is timeless. God has no time limits. God lives in one eternal now. There is no reason for God to be in in any hurry because time is always on his side. No matter what happens to human rulers on earth, the throne of heaven is always safe and secure. In practical terms, this means God's rule is inescapable. You cannot wait out God. He has all the time in the world. So if you're running from him today, you cannot run away from God. So we see that the Lord reigns gloriously. We also see the Lord reigns powerfully. The president of the United States of America... Whenever he comes on or she comes on the stage, they are not introduced. They are presented. No one reads the bio of the president of the United States. Can you imagine how awkward that would be if they would say, you know, President so-and-so served in the Senate for 30 years, worked on this legislation, this legislation. No. The president of the United States does not need a bio. It is announced, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. The President of the United States needs no introduction. Everyone in the world knows the President of the United States. When the President walks into the room, comes on stage, or takes the podium, everyone rises in respect. I had the privilege in college to be in a room with the President 
of the United States. And when one of the aides walks from behind the curtain and places the seal of the president on the podium, the president comes out, out of respect, everyone rises. Everyone stands. This show of respect should be how all respond to the statement, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. But that is not the case. The world responds to the authority of God with rebellion. This is the stark contrast between the reality of God's work and the response to God's authority. We see, because of this rebellion, we see the testing of divine authority. It says in verse 3, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. What does this mean? This is an odd verse. What is he talking about? The floods? The floods, the floods. He's not talking about literal floods. All nature is under divine control. Ultimately, floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes are acts of God, not acts of nature. Likewise, the floods are not mythological. In pagan religions, idol gods reigned after prevailing over the mystical powers of the personified waters. That is not what this verse is about. The floodwaters picture here sinful rebellion against God's divine authority. Consider verse 3 in that sense. The psalmist says the floods have lifted up, meaning that the sinful decisions or the sinful volition of man rises up of their own accord the floods have lifted up with a sense of alarm and urgency the psalmist says the floods have lifted up three times in this verse notice the building parallelism the floods have lifted up the floods have lifted up their voice the floods have lifted up their roaring what's wrong with this world is the world is continually increasing their rebellion against this phrase, the Lord reigns. We can see it more today than we could 5, 10, 20 years ago. The floods are lifting up. The world is in rebellion against God. The floods have lifted up. It is a symbol of chaos, of violence, and evil. The floods lifting up is simultaneously a statement about the power of sin and the weakness of man. Protest, legislation, science, education, stimulus packages, or a new president will ultimately fix nothing when the floods are lifted up because you see we are on a collision course the rebellion of man and the reign of our lord is going to collide so we see the testing of divine authority and we see the the triumph of this divine authority verse four responds to verse three mightier than the thunders of many waters mightier than the waves of the sea The Lord on high is mighty. The Lord does not prevent the floods from lifting up their voice of their roaring. 
But the Lord triumphs over the flood as they lift up their voice of their roaring. The floods have lifted up, but the Lord is mightier than the floods. The Lord is mightier than the waters of the sea. You see, the floodwaters may be overwhelming to you and to me. In many days, we feel overwhelmed with the floodwaters hitting us smack in the face. But God is not overwhelmed. What is a tsunami to us is nothing more than a ripple to God. Psalms 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forevermore. The Lord reigns. God does not merely reign when the sun is shining. The Lord reigns when the floods are coming. This verse is not just a statement about the mighty power of God. It is also a statement about the total sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, after a long day of teaching, the Lord said to his disciples, let us cross over the other side. And as they sailed across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went down into the ship to sleep. And as he slept, the winds and the waves and the waters attacked the ship. The terrorized disciples woke up Jesus and asked him if he cared about their well-being. What a crazy answer, or what a crazy question. Jesus arose and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And he said, peace be still, and everything went from chaos to calm. Mark 4.41 says the disciples asked one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The answer is obvious. Only God is mightier than the winds, waves, and waters. Jesus is more than an example, a prophet, or a miracle worker. Jesus is the son of the living God. He reigns. Jesus is heaven's wonder, hell's worry, and humanity's way out of sin, guilt, shame, and death, and hell. Whatever the storm is, the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save. We see last of all that the Lord reigns righteously. In the midst of the Watergate scandal, if you remember with President Nixon, The embattled President Richard Nixon held a press conference at the newly built Contemporary Hotel at Disney World. (laughs) They're in uh, one of the um, conference rooms there at the Contemporary. If you're not familiar with Disney World, that is the hotel on the west side of Magic Kingdom, the first hotel that they built there at Disney World. And it's from that hotel that he delivered this famous phrase. The American people have a right to know that their president is not a crook. (laughs) You guys remember hearing that? That's a famous phrase for a president to issue. He's saying, I am not a crook. He would soon resign from the presidency in disgrace. As a result, the American people lost trust in public officials. We now assume all our leaders are crooks. <laughs> we, we all have this assumption that a politician is kind of a greasy, crooked person. You'd have to be a crook to get into politics. That's kind of the assumption uh, when it comes to politics. But the Lord who reigns gloriously and powerfully, he also reigns not as a crook, 
but our Lord reigns righteously. Righteously over this world. God's faithful word. How does God exercise his rule over this world and this earth? It's not by the demonstration of his omnipotent power. It is by the declaration of his word. You see, human kings reign by what they do, and they're remembered by what they do. The divine king reigns by what he says. With God, they are the same thing. When God speaks, things happen. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there but water to the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, we live in a world of lies, half-truths, deception. Who in this world can we trust? Who can we trust? It says verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Decrees is a synonym for scripture. Your word, your scripture, God is It is God's testimony. That is what we can trust. God's decrees are not just trustworthy. The psalmist says they are very trustworthy. This is superlative language. Trustworthiness does not have qualifications or quantifications. Either you trust someone or you don't. A person is trustworthy or not. God's word is trustworthy. Why do we know that God's word is trustworthy? Because everything he has said, he will do, he has fulfilled. God has never broken his promise. He has proven time and time again, as the psalmist has said, his decrees are trustworthy the worshiping heart sings the decrees are very trustworthy you can trust the word of god psalms 19 7 says the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the word of god is sufficient to reach the lost sanctify the believer govern the church counsel the trouble and change the world isaiah 48 says the grass withers the flower fades but the word of God stands forever. We see, last of all, God's holy character. Psalms 93 begins with majesty and ends with holiness. Verse 5 says, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. What is the chief characteristic of the house of the Lord? It's holiness. Holiness befits God's house. It is suitable adornment for God's house. Holiness is the defining attribute of the God that we serve. It is the quality that sets the Lord apart from all others. Isaiah 6, 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is so holy that everything associated with him is considered holy. Because God is holy, Holiness, as the psalmist says, befits his house. 
This is an important statement about the character of God. The Lord reigns righteously in all that he says. The Lord reigns righteously in all that he does. His ways are good. His house is holy. His rule is righteous. You can count on God to do what is right. When is the last time you ever heard the word righteous ruler with a mayor, governor, president in this country? The word righteous and ruler never go together. But that's not our God. Our God is a righteous ruler. Psalms 93.5 says, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Forevermore implies to both statements in this verse. God's decrees are trustworthy forever, and His holiness befits God's house forever. Let me ask you, are you glad that our God is not up for re-election every four years. <laughs> I'm so glad that our God reigns forevermore. You know, as we finish out this passage, and I think about how this passage benefits us. Because this is, you know, the only words used here is God, the Lord. This passage is all about God. Who can you trust in this world. You know, as a, um, at the bank that I work for, they do employee surveys periodically throughout the year. And the question that is on every single survey, do you trust your manager? It's a very important, trust is a very, very important thing in our society. We see all around in our society the tearing down of this trust of all of the institutions that have been built. Trust in our political leaders, trust in the medical field, trust in wherever we look, we see the trust continually eroding. And that is the devil working in this world. But what he is doing is showing a contrast between this world that will continually fail you, the people who are sinners in this world that you think you can trust, who will fail you at some point. Even I, as your pastor, I will fail you. Don't place your trust in me. There's only one that we can place our trust in, and that is God. Why? Because he righteously reigns. We can trust him. You know, on our small group, we have our last week this week. If you have not come to any, please feel free to come. But we kind of, we looked at the story of Jesus walking on the water with the disciples. And we talked about what it's like to be in a boat on the storm, in a storm. And I think if you look at it, what makes us so fearful of being on a boat in a storm or being on a plane in turbulence or some of you maybe it's you know, being on a roller coaster or something of that nature is there's one thing that all of those have in common. 
It's that we're not in control in those circumstances. We lose control, and we as a people, we all have control problems. We all like to think that we're in control. But the reality is, the truth is, we are not. God is in control. The Lord reigns. We can leave here with the peace and comfort to know that whatever we face this next week is not just some random circumstance, but our God is in control. Why do we know that God is in control? Because the psalmist says, the Lord reigns forevermore. If you're sitting here today, and you are not a follower of Christ, allow this to be a warning for you that you cannot escape God. There will never be a time when God will not exist. There will never be a time as Nietzsche claimed that God is dead. Why? Because the Lord reigns forevermore, and there's coming a day when there will be a reckoning between you and a holy God. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to face this Lord? Let's pray.